You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell. I'm an anchor here at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Uh, today, we are talking about caregiving. Uh, since the pandemic, we have learned how the, how the needs and the concerns have shifted as far as caregiving is concerned. And we're joined by two people who have very intimate knowledge of this. Tim Allen, CEO of Care.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Leanne. Great to be here. And Reshma Shijani, uh, the founder of Marshall Plan for Moms. Reshma, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Leanne, for having us. And a note to our viewers, we of course want to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please tweet at us at Post Live. And also a note to our viewers, just want to say that Reshma and Tim have worked together on many projects in the past, uh, but we are thankful that they can join us here together today. Um, let's get started. So Tim, I want to start with you. As, as CEO of Care.com, you run a company that is has a lot of knowledge about the ins and the outs of caregiving, the needs, the amount people are being paid, how much more they need. So can you just talk very broadly about what you have learned from the pandemic on the caregiving needs of this country and the caregivers? Right. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the forum. So what we've seen from the pandemic is really that caregiving has always been an undercurrent of the conversation in society. And what the pandemic did is it really shone a spotlight on where our infrastructure fell short. And it's infrastructure across the board for everything from child care to adult elder care to taking care of your parents and aging, for example, to disabled care. So no one was immune, so to speak, using pandemic language in terms of having the infrastructure crumble underneath them. And what I mean specifically in that is you had schools closing, which everyone was afflicted by. You had adults that were aging in home that you had to get nourishment, care, and necessities to. And you also had disabled individuals whose families were primary caregivers who couldn't get their therapy, their rehab, their, their medical uh, services as they needed to be able to to be able to uh, function and, and move forward in progress and in, in terms of all of the care that they had. So it kind of went across the gamut of acuity needs. Um, and so when parents or you know adults, I like to say, because it does adult children tend to be the ones taking care of both children and individual members of the family, such as aging parents, were faced with this, they were left in a dire situation going, what do we do? What, what, what do we, you know, we've relied on the government for certain aspects of this in the past. We've relied on private institutions for other aspects of this. And so we're left in this gray area of not knowing where to go and how to function. Um, and that really became transparent. It was, it was one of those things where I was getting emails hourly during the pandemic of families going, where do I go? What do I do? How do I deal with this? And so we really focused on what you had right in front of you, the capable options that were faced in front of you, and what you could do in your own ecosystem and bubble. But it really was one of the things that showed all of the cracks in the system. And for the first time ever, I think we're having a national conversation about what we can do better as a society in America. And that's been great. Well, Reshma, uh, Marshall Plan for Moms is an organization that you note on your website on the front page that um, you 
can't really go back to normal pre-pandemic because the normal pre-pandemic was broken, especially for women who are the primary caregivers in this country. Can you talk a little bit about if the conversation has advanced and has in fact changed because of the pandemic? Well, I mean, we've always treated America's mothers as our social safety net. And pre-pandemic, moms were doing two-thirds of the caregiving work. And so when crises like COVID hit, you know, we would have to supplement essentially, you know, our paid labor for our unpaid labor, which actually then pushed us out of the workforce. Um, and so this hasn't really changed uh, after the pandemic. You know, moms are still doing two thirds of the caregiving work uh, and we still haven't put a priority on fixing our broken system of care. Uh, you know, we half of the daycare centers are still shut down. Far too many families spend more on, you know, their child care than any other cost center. You know, we were hoping that in Build Back Better uh, that we would create a ceiling. So no American family paid, you know, more than 7% of their income to child care, but that bill didn't get passed. And so we were too busy bailing out airlines instead of bailing out American families. And now American families are still paying the price. Well, Tim, do you think that the care industry needs to be overhauled? Are there problems? It does. Yeah, absolutely. There's definite problems in the system. You know, I can I can speak about the multitude of issues. You know, Reshma points to the no more than seven percent of your household income should go to to uh, child care or to to care services, and a majority of families are spending ten and upwards of twenty percent of their household income on on these care services. That's not sustainable for an American family. That's not sustainable from a policy perspective. That's also not sustainable from an economic perspective of the prosperity of our country. You look at the care infrastructure, and it continues to to be this farming antiquated system from the 1960s where schools open up at 8 a.m. and close at 2.30. Now that isn't meant to be teachers need to step up and do more. Teachers do a lot. What this means is we need a care infrastructure and we need support from both employers and also the government in terms of building systems that are actually going to help support American families to really be successful in their caregiving needs. The distinguishment I wanted to just point out, Leanne, which is what we've been pointing to here, but it isn't really clear to most Americans is that caregiving is usually compartmentalized into this, what I call the Disneyfication of, you know, this British nanny walks into your home and that's what we compartmentalize into nannies. The majority of Americans are caregivers. They just happen to have this second job that is a full-time job of unpaid labor, majorly women, as Reshma pointed out, are, who are picking this up and are actual caregivers. Their profession may not be caregiving, but they are caregivers. And the rationale behind that is that we've really blended duty, loyalty, and responsibility of taking care of our family members, whether that is children, whether that is aging parents, whether that is a disabled individual in the home, we've really marginalized that into a responsibility without showing the distinction of everyone is a caregiver in society. And so what we need to do from a policy perspective is really look across the spectrum and go, how can employers step up? and really provide benefits so that when there's a full-time job at play here and you also have a full-time job as a caregiver, it's sustainable. There is that safety net. It is not dependent upon one person. And then the government also needs to step up. And there's a ton of policies, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit of time, but there's a ton of policies in play here that we really think from tax credits all the way through that will revolutionize our care system because it does need a revolution. It doesn't need an evolution, it needs a revolution. 
Well, Reshma, can you follow up a little bit more on that? Um, Tim said that corporations, companies need to step up and provide benefits, specifically what sort of benefits. And then on the flip side for the government, um, other than tax credits, what sort of policies um, does the government need to provide in addition to the 7% capping on a person's income for childcare? Yeah, I mean, in my latest book, Pay Up, I talk about exactly what workplaces could, should do. You know, for so long, when we talk about women's equality, we've been saying, you know, if you just leaned in real hard, if you just girl bossed your way to the top, if you just did a power pose before a meeting, we would get to equality. And so we have never, ever been focused on the fact that most mothers show up with two and a half jobs before they even get to the workplace. They're doing caretaking almost full time and they're working full time in their jobs. And it's untenable. And it's untenable because we live in a country uh, that doesn't provide any structural support. America is the only industrialized nation that doesn't offer paid leave. Almost 85% of women after they have a children go back to work 10 days after having a baby, literally while they are in an adult diaper. We are the only industrialized nation uh, that doesn't provide affordable childcare. We provide the least amount to families of any other industrialized nation in providing support uh, for childcare. And so, and again, we're in this moment kind of post pandemic, we're still fighting about flexibility, even though we've seen that so many workers are productive even while they're able to take their kid to soccer or pick their kid up from school, but we're still pushing against that. Uh, and, and this is again why you know we have not reached equality yet. And so one of the things I talk about in my book is that it, now's the time for companies to really step up and for, for mothers to ask for what they need to be successful. And so that begins with paid leave uh, and having paid leave and not just having women take paid leave, but mandating that men take it too. There are too many companies today that still don't have gender neutral paid leave policy. And so when you're a big, you know, Fortune 100 company and you don't have gender neutral paid leave policy, you're essentially signaling that caregiving work should be done by women and not men. And you're exacerbating the inequality gap. You know, one of the things that's really shocking that we've seen is that, you know, during the pandemic, you did start seeing companies step up and provide more, I would say, fair and just paid leave policies. But there was a recent report that came out two weeks ago that showed post-pandemic companies have reduced those paid leave policies by 65%. Uh, the second benefit that I think is critical is childcare. Uh, the, the model childcare, as I'm sure Tim can talk about, is broken. And so someone has to provide the subsidy, whether that's the government or that's the private sector. And the government has pretty much said, well, we're not providing the subsidy. So that means that American companies essentially have to provide the subsidy in order to enable women to work. Because the vast majority of women, because of the motherhood penalty, essentially work to work. And so if their company is not providing some sort of childcare support, it becomes untenable and they either leave the workforce or they downshift their careers, which is what we saw happen during the pandemic. And so the Marshall Plan for Moms, we launched, launched the National Business Child Care Coalition with companies like Patagonia, Etsy, Archwell, um, Synchrony Financial, you know, um, Athletes United, uh, Fast Retailing, to essentially as models of what they're doing to provide childcare supports to their employees. Because what they have seen, what they have seen is that when they provide childcare supports, it reduces the attrition rate. And it's a thing that parents are basically saying, I will go work at this company if I can get support with my childcare. It's the number one thing that we have to solve. And we have to stop seeing 
childcare as a personal problem that you have to go fix and see it as an economic issue. Um, Tim, I want to switch a little bit to the caregiver shortage as well. Uh, you run care.com. I have been on that website many times looking for care, full disclosure. Um, and I have personally noticed and over the past couple of years, there is a shortage, especially when you need part-time care. My kids are in school. I don't need care all day long. Um, so can you talk about First, how has the company changed to address that? And is there anything being done to recruit caregivers, get more people into this industry? Yeah. So during the pandemic, we had a, a moment of looking and reflecting upon ourselves on what the world would look like post-pandemic. And what we found is really flexible care is becoming more of the norm than institutional care. And what I mean by that is, the nine to five configuration of care is somewhat obsolete. It's the dinosaur of the industry. So what we really focused on was being able to give families the choice and option of having configurable care where they could actually have it work for their schedule. Now, whether that is they have jobs that actually require them to go in in different hours, different shifts, different periods, all the way through to now the white collar labor force that is working from home more and more. So providing that configurable care has really been what we call a watershed moment inside the organization. And what that required was being able to go out and recruit a workforce that actually is able to meet that demand. Now, historically in the industry, as everyone is likely aware of, but I will just say it for the sake, is this has been a, a labor pool that has been underpaid, underrepresented, has not had the benefits, and has really been marginalized in a lot of ways. And what we have found is that as inflation has occurred, rate, uh, rates have risen. Now, rates have risen, putting more pressure on the family in order to pay, but the rates have risen in, in, you know, up to right now over 10% for nannies, full-time nannies. But then also babysitters who are also doing these configurable care jobs have risen up to 7.5%. So we look at that data and we're starting to see more of the actual individuals who are, are professional caregivers or try to pick up extra hours, the moms who actually have kids now in school who want to actually have more opportunity for income and employment are coming to the platform and working to do the configurable care jobs that are needed necessarily for after school pickup or more of the time frames of two to three hours when someone might have a meeting in the home. We're seeing more of that labor pool actually gravitate to the platform, which has been a boon for us. Overall, though, the industry is facing somewhat of a crisis in regards to the institutional care, that in center care, you've seen a mass drain of employees. There's employee shortages inside of daycare centers today. And that's really been exacerbated by what we call childcare deserts. In America today, over 50% of children actually reside in a childcare desert. Childcare deserts defined as not having access to care, either institutional care or any type of care outside of an individual or maybe a family member. So when you look, and in fact, one of the stats that I was actually reading yesterday is there's three children for every daycare spot now available, given the shortage of actual employees inside daycare centers. That industry is going through a revolution right now. You're seeing pay raises increase, you're seeing rates increase for families, but it's also putting pressure on the families in and of themselves to make the decision, do I work? Do I not work? How do I afford childcare? This all circles back to there has to be an, an economic under, underpinning here of either employers or government to help support that raise and that increase of rates, because that's what's going to continue the labor pool. That's what's going to continue to meet the demand. That's what's going to continue to allow institutions to thrive.
Yeah, Reshma, it's like it's like a circular conversation because people want to pay their caregivers more, but people can't afford to pay their caregivers more. Um, you know, we talked about a lot of potential solutions, but I mean, you mentioned this stuff was taken out of the Build Back Better plan. It hasn't passed Congress. Is there the political will to do it? Um, and how long will it take for this country to get there? I mean, there needs to be, especially because post-Dobbs, we've entered a period where we're forcing birth. Again, in a country that doesn't have paid leave, that doesn't have affordable childcare, that has high rates of maternal death, especially amongst women of color and black mothers. And so we need to have a reckoning right now. I mean, when you look at the 26 states that are that are trying to make the most, you know, the most, uh, you know, excessive reproductive rights policies in terms of really putting the most amount of restrictions, criminalizing women for seeking abortions. Those are the policies that have the worst benefits uh, for mothers, including paid leave and affordable childcare, and the highest rates of of mortality rates for women of color. And so there needs to be a reckoning right now um, because this is it's untenable. And, you know, if we are a country, you know, going back to the economic issue, if we're a country that values innovation, that wants to com compete with, you know, China and Russia, then we have got to make sure that all of our workers are able to work at their fullest potential. And the reality is, is that even now, two years after the pandemic, we still have one million women that are missing from the workforce. And that mm -hmm. doesn't even count the amount of women who have downshifted their careers because they have to for a pay for childcare. Yeah, Reshma and I, we, we're running out of time and we only have time for one short answer, but I do want to ask you this. Does the conversation around unpaid care, um, does has that shifted enough? Um, because women who are at home, some men too, caring for their children, um, this is unpaid work. It is. Uh, I think I think it's shifted with with women. Uh, we realize that we're doing a tremendous amount of unpaid labor and not getting paid for it, and we're not going to work for free. So there is a movement coming, and there is a reckoning coming with moms. Great, and we are out of time. I could talk to you guys for four hours about all of this. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Tim Allen and Reshma Shajani. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be back in just a few minutes for the next part of our conversation. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello and welcome. I'm Suzanne Kelly, CEO and publisher of The Cypher Brief. The Cypher Brief is a media organization that focuses on national security issues, putting vital issues in the forefront. Today, we're going to talk about another vital issue that isn't always in the forefront, and that's caregiving. The COVID pandemic put strains on all sectors of our society, from health to work to caregiving. And I want to focus for just a few minutes on just how that's impacting both individuals and families. Joining me to talk about this is Regina Bly. Regina is Chief Program and Policy Officer at the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. Regina, welcome. Thank you, Suzanne, for having me. And we do want this conversation to be accessible for everyone, including the visually impaired. So I'm going to describe myself as a young-ish looking a Caucasian brunette who's sitting in front of a bookshelf. And I'm a black female that uses a wheelchair and I'm sitting in front of an eclectic bookshelf. 
Regina, it feels like every issue when you're talking about caregiving is a personal one. I'm wondering if you would mind sharing a little bit of your story with us and how that led you to the Reeve Foundation. Absolutely. As a person that's been living with paralysis for over 36 years, I can tell you caregiving is a main issue that I deal with on a regular basis. And it's mentally and physically expensive, exhausting, and it's taxing for me and my partner. For example, I don't look this way by accident. I'm present and fierce because of my partner. He helped me with my hair, clothing, and other personal care um, activities. And this really shouldn't be his role. And I'm grateful that he understands that it's needed, but then it also starts for us to have difficult conversations about when are we focusing on my care and when am I just supposed to be your partner in life? And so these are the type of situations that families shouldn't have to face. And I think a lot of families find themselves in exactly that situation. Um, you know, the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation operates something called the National Paralysis Resource Center, which I believe is the only federally funded center that's dedicated solely to assisting anyone with any type of paralysis. What kind of help does the foundation offer and who can get that help? As the only federally funded center that's available, we're afforded the opportunity to provide support to caregivers through an assortment of free programs and services. Our mighty team of information specialists serve on the front lines and are available to answer questions and provide individualized support. We've connected with over 115,000 people across the country, and, and many of those are caregivers. And each day they help people navigate the caregiving system and focus on issues that are inherent to this crisis for how to find and pay for caregiving to caregiver burnout. Our peer and family support program is another resource for caregivers that offers support and real world advice from those who have been there. And finally, our quality of life programs are, have awarded more than $1 million since 2015 to nonprofits that offer innovative respite care services. I didn't know that. That's an impressive number. You know, many of us remember the accident that left Christopher Reeve paralyzed. And we also remember the incredible support that his wife, Dana, provided. Um, I think just she felt the sympathy of a nation, they both did, but also the admiration for their strength in facing this. And, you know, they were trying to deal with a, a curveball that life had thrown them. Um, sharing information and stories of coping and hope seemed to be driving them. How is their legacy being carried on today? Well, Dana Reed was known for being a model caregiving caregiver supporting Christopher Reeve and their family after he sustained a spinal cord injury in 1995. It was her vision to provide resources for the entire support system that led to the creation of the National Paralysis Resource Center. It's her vision that we try to continue forward with our information specialists and our peer and family support program mentors to make sure that people are available to give them the information that they need and also share information and experiences so that we can help at the ready and be able to be a support when someone needs it. And before I let you go, I want to ask, how can people get involved? Absolutely. I want to say for several years, the Reeve Foundation has advocated with many others across the country about 
home and community-based services. And as we know that the, the bill did not pass recently, but that doesn't mean that our work is over. We need your help and we want you to join us as grassroots advocates and join our ReFoundation's regional champions. And this is your opportunity to share your story with others and also with representatives and senators to let them know the trials that are associated with caregiving and to also let them know a way of building a better model system that will work for everyone. And the way that you can do that is to join us by going to our website at www.christopherreeve.org. Regina, any closing thoughts or any words of advice you'd like to share with families who might be facing something like this? I know this road is not easy, but you're not alone. And that's what we're here for, to give you the advice and support that you need. Give us a call or send us an email and also go to our website and we'll be able to give you the information to help you get through it. Again, you're not alone. I think that's a really important message for families just to hear it because in the moment, sometimes it feels like you're very alone. So I want to thank you, Regina Bly, uh, Chief Program and Policy Officer with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. Looking fierce. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And now back to my colleagues at the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you who are just joining, I'm Leanne Caldwell. In our next part of the conversation, I'm joined by two women who founded Wives and Girlfriends of Spinal Cord Injury, Brooke Paget and Elena Polly. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi there. Thanks for having us. And a reminder to our viewers that we would like to hear from you. So tweet at us questions at post live. So Elena, I want to start with you. You've been involved in caregiving since before the pandemic. I want to ask you how you have seen it shift, the needs shift, and how the the needs of not only the person being cared for, but also the caregiver have changed. Um, absolutely. So I believe, you know, when the pandemic first began in 2019, a lot of caregivers were sincerely concerned and worried about having their partners go into hospital. The lack of support within the hospital system, the lack of staffing, provides a very detrimental setting for the patients that have spinal cord injuries. And what I mean by that is pressure wounds and getting, you know, a very severe disease while you're in hospital and becoming intubated. So the work of non-paid spousal caregivers, the, the workload became a lot a lot heavier. We canceled home care, the little bit of home care that we did have provided because we were so concerned that our partners would become very ill. Um, and in that, you know, all of that fell on family caregivers, specifically spouses, to do the extra showering bowel programs in amongst the dressing, the passive exercises, the physio, the occupational therapy, the grocery shopping, the cleaning, the everything. It became extremely isolating for everybody involved because we were living in a very fear-based model. Brooke, talk about wives and girlfriends of spinal cord injury, WAGs of SCI. Why did you found it and when? So bo <clears throat> both of our partners were injured um, 
at quadriplegics and we found each other on Instagram of all places. There was really no community for women like us, young women like us, especially. We thought we were all alone. And so when we found each other on Instagram, we were so excited at the connection that we had built between us because our whole lives had changed. You know, we were now living a caregiving life. It was very different than everybody else's lives, our friends and family. They didn't understand. Sometimes we would only have half an hour of free time and we would go for a quick coffee. And if one of us had to go early, we would understand each other's plight and we would say, okay, have a good day. And, you know, we would give each other medical supplies when we would run out and um, we just understood the life. And so one day we were sitting there and we said, you know what, we don't want any other woman to feel alone again. We want to make sure that these women have connection like ours. We want to see if we can replicate that. And so we started an Instagram page and we were super happy when we had a few hundred followers and, you know, it kind of blew up from there. And we now have women in our community all across the world. And it was a very, very grassroots organization. You know, we are not funded by any foundation. We don't have a foundation. We are boots to the ground advocates. We are real women who don't have an agenda other than supporting other women in our situation and connecting women with each other because the resources that other women have from living this life are so invaluable. And we just want to make sure everybody knows about us because a lot of us get lost. Elena, I want you to back up for a little bit. Um, talk to the experiences you went through early on when you first became a caregiver. What was it like? Were you, did you have any awareness into the community, into the needs when when it began for you? Um, no, absolutely not. So my partner was injured in Cuba while we were on vacation. So the caregiving needs um from myself became very real. Um, you know, sustaining a spinal cord injury in a socialist country with very, very limited medical equipment and resources was the reality we were living. And at that time, we didn't have friends and family come fly out to Cuba to help us. So a lot of the roles were placed on me right off the get-go. And I think from that, as we were transferred to Canada, to the Canadian hospital and our medical system, it was very difficult for me to take a step back and allow for a medical COVID without questioning. Because like Brooke had said, there are other agendas around healthcare and big pharma, especially when somebody sustains a spinal cord injury. You get sent home with a huge prescription pad of medications that have adverse reactions. So these were conversations that we never thought we would ever have to dive into or do our research into, but it became very real and something that we've been very passionate about to help so many other people and open up the conversation of reality around that. Brooke, can you talk a little bit about the challenges that people don't understand unless you are a caregiver, uh, the financial strain, um, the emotional toll, the physical toll? Can you explain that a little bit? So one of the main issues that a lot of spousal or common law or, you know, girlfriends struggle with is the enmeshment of 
providing the physical care for your partner, but also providing the emotional support as well when they're going through these challenges that nobody should have to deal with. But unfortunately, we have to on a daily basis, the psychological struggles of dealing with this injury and all of the many, many side effects that nobody talks about. It impacts your daily life so intensely. And so having that burden of not only do we have to care for our partners physically and help them with things that, you know, not all, nobody else has to deal with this kind of stuff in, in our friendship circles, except for us, things like, you know, like Elena said, bowel programs, bladder programs, things that people don't want to talk about, we have to deal with. And so balancing that and making sure that we maintain our own positive mental state, especially when our partners are struggling. And then also the balance of our partner has a lot of issues mentally, emotionally, we have to deal with that. And being able to devote our time to self-care and get that time for ourselves in while balancing caring for them and our emotional needs and their emotional needs and then not becoming codependent at the same time it's a huge psychological struggle and there are no resources available for helping women through this even in the hospital systems in the us and canada it's very similar they don't provide any counseling unless you're suicidal so it's very serious and these women are we like to describe it as treading water it always feels like you're treading water always trying to just survive and we're kind of overlooked because we are the partners we're there even by our friends and family and so just the balance trying to find the balance again is something that we as you know advocates and partners is something that is so important and kind of the foundation of our group we also are advocates for creating paid spousal and common law partner caregiving mm -hmm. systems as this is something that we work on behind the scenes a lot of our time because this is one of the hugest issues in our community is there are very few paid programs where women get treated equally as another caregiver that comes from outside the home and get supported in their endeavor of being a great caregiver, right? Right. It's so fascinating. I actually, in a previous story, knew someone who went through an agency who was caring for their loved one, went through the agency, got hired by the agency so that they would get paid essentially for the yeah. work that they were doing at home. Um, you know, such such a powerful assessment and testimony. Um, a disclosure for our audience, uh, Brooke and Elena have worked in the past for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, which is a sponsor of our program today. Um, Elena, I have a question from an audience, uh, someone who is watching, who says that it's from Pat in Indiana. She says, my late husband was a quadriplegic due to SCI from a car accident. Uh, he was a a C6-7 injury with a C1 fracture, of course, those are spinal cord injuries. Uh, I started a secretarial business in our home to make ends meet. I was a sole caregiver, except when he was in the hospital. How did you all cope with that? And more importantly, how did you cope with the doctors who don't listen when you know something is wrong? Elena. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is a very real question, very fully loaded question. And I think that you sort of, I mean, for myself, especially like both Brooke and I in our roles, I feel like we're quite fierce and fiery when it comes to advocating for our partners. And it's really, truly just being able to tread that thin line between being a uh, successful advocate and doing it with love 
and being extremely frustrated because you're seeing things like pressure wounds happening, but you're being ignored. So for us, we have a legal advocate on our team, uh, Robin Wishart with Wishart Brain and Spine Law, and she has been a tremendous help for us. She's a Harvard lawyer, part of our girl gang, who's been able to be our advocate. And that was a huge help for us for coping from the very beginning. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult not to get frustrated because we have to understand that doctors and specialists are also human. There is such a thing as human error and and there is a shortage of positions out there that a lot of the time you do have to become your own advocate. And I think instead of looking at it as a burden or a frustration, look at it as empowerment, that you're able to do these things. And um, you could be helping a lot of other people by using your voice and, you know, just take control of the situation is my biggest piece of advice. Do it yourself. Don't rely on anybody else and do your research. Brooke, there's a report that came out last April. There's been a lot of reports about this, that um, the amount of anxiety and depression among caregivers is high, and especially it increased during the pandemic. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the support that WAGS of SCI has for its members, um, what that you guys have for each other? So we have over 10,000 women worldwide in our community now. And so when a woman, you know, when her partner's freshly injured, she can find our information in a hospital or through a nurse or through another advocate locally in her area. And she's then directed to our support network on Facebook and wagsofsci.com. We also have a podcast with a ton of resources. And this allows the women to not feel so alone, like their problems aren't so unique. Because when an injury happens in your family to your partner, you feel like you are completely alone, like no one understands. And so what this does, is it, it connects you with thousands of women who are in your shoes, who are real women dealing with these problems on a daily basis. Some women live in small communities and live in more isolated communities, and they don't have access to occupational therapists or physiotherapists or even doctors and specialists. And so a lot of the times they need to questions to be to be answered from women who have been in their shoes and who can help them. Sometimes the situations are really dire and then we have the resources that we can direct them to in order to get them help. But women in the community that are actually living this life are the most profound resources that you can have because they have so many ideas they have so many fresh perspectives and when we get posts um, or emails from women coming to us saying that they're depressed and they're sad and they can't handle this life we always provide a supportive shoulder for them even virtually and make sure that they know that they're not alone and some of these phases are very important to go through especially in a grieving process you've got to feel all of these emotions and to be able to talk about them with your sisters who understand how you're feeling and who have been there in the past and who have gotten out of it have tools and techniques that can help um and and they we can just all be there for each other and it's just it's it's so important Elena, we got a lot of questions from the audience uh, before this started. And one thing that we noticed was uh, people who are paralyzed uh, wrote in and asked how they can become better advocates and caregivers of themselves. So um, we might have just lost Elena for a second, but if Brooke is still there, uh, we can. I'm here. Okay. 
Um, so, Brooke, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you have any advice for the for people who themselves are paralyzed and who want to be more um, involved in their own caregiving? You know, to piggyback on what Elena was saying earlier, being your own best advocate is so important and empowering yourself into saying, listen, this is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I, what needs to happen for me. And doing it in a way that is compassionate and that understands that people around you, they do want to help. They just don't really know how. And sometimes people overstep. You know, family caregivers, even spouses, they tend to do a lot for their partner when their partner could be more independent. Um, and it's all about self-advocacy and just being your own best friend and being and, and really trying to understand what you need as an injured person and what would make you happy and what would make what would work for your life instead of just accepting what someone else says should be your life. You know, I found that is a huge hurdle in this life is you have doctors telling you something, you have physiotherapists telling you something, you have the community telling you something, and it may not be what's best for you. So I think it's really important to tune into your own needs and make sure you understand what you need, because it may be different than everybody else. And just kind of empowering yourself to say, okay, this is what I need. This is how I can help myself. Um, and just building on that every single day to make your life more fruitful. And Brooke, you, we don't have Elena back yet, but uh, you did not expect to be in this situation. So can you talk, you know, we've talked a lot about the challenges. Um, have there been any su welcome surprises, any good sides about, about this? I really like to talk about this um, because for me, my relationship is entirely different than it was at before injury. I was with my partner for four years as an able-bodied couple before his injury. And we've been together eight years since then. So we've had eight years in a in an interabled relationship and then, you know, four years before that. And my partner's personality has changed. And I always say this to him, it's changed for the better. He's really, really um, developed and matured and he knows what he wants. He develops a side of him that is very empathetic and compassionate. He loves helping people more than he ever has. It's developed his empathy. It is, you know, he's become such a well-rounded person. And in turn, our communication has gotten so much better because it has to be. I'm his 24-7 primary caregiver, right? We have to communicate extremely well in order to make it not only as a couple, but to make sure his care is top-notch. And it's a balance. And in that balance comes really working on how we communicate with each other and how we nurture our relationship. That is so important. And so with that has come a really, really rich relationship. We are so close. We know how to balance our needs. We know how to listen to each other. And to be honest, I always say this to my husband, I don't know if we ever would have gotten to this point in our relationship had he not been injured. And so I think that is really positive. And I've seen so many couples that have transitioned into just a really beautiful relationship post-injury. If you allow it and if you really devote yourself to communication. What do you hope comes out of this pandemic as the country, the world emerges from it um, and as far as caregiving is concerned? I hope that women especially have a newfound sense of 
what they want and need and what's important to them. I think the pandemic has taught people that you really have to nurture your own needs and you are very important. Your health is very important. Your mental wellness is very important. And so just taking that sense of this is what I need. This is what is going to make me feel really good. This is what I need to work on in order to create a better world for myself is, is really important. And I hope that women are really going within and analyzing what they want out of their lives instead of struggling so much on a daily basis. And with that comes new opportunities. When you open your eyes wider and you relax and you see what's available out there, what could be available, it's just there's lots of potential. I think people are looking for growth right now. I think people are done with the fear. They're done with worrying. They want to live. And with that comes just focusing on what's truly, truly important and advocating for yourself. We also are, personally, Elaine and I are working really, really hard to advocate for, again, paid spousal caregiving opportunities and empowering women behind the scenes to really work on their own cases and say, hey, wait a second, I can get paid here. How do I do that? And trying to find a way to make it so that they can get paid for at least some of their efforts. Mm-hmm. Great. And Elena, welcome back. Um, uh, one last question to you, and that is, what do you want, just very broad question, but what do you want people to know about caregiving and about um, what you have gone through? Um, <clears throat> what I would like people to know is that, and it, this is sort of echoing what was said earlier in the program, is that every single person has either been a caregiver or will need a caregiver or will be a caregiver. And I think that if we don't start advocating for caregivers in our lives now, that we're setting ourselves up for a really grim future when we're even older or disabled or, you know, for the mothers that have the children that are really worn out, that this is the time now to be able to use your voice and advocate for these people because it's going to be you. Brooke Paget, Elena uh, uh, Polly, thank you so much for your time today. That was such a wonderful discussion. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story and advocating uh, for caregivers. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.